In case you arrived a little bit late today, uh, I just want to remind you, and maybe you haven't seen it, but there's this little box at the back out there, and I know you're thinking I'm saying it's the offering altar. That's for later. I know the temptation is there, you want to give. But uh, beyond that box, there's a, another little brown box, and in that there's tons of little envelopes with your giving statements for 2015. So I'd encourage you to collect it today. Uh, for those of you who donated all year last year and given, and this is your statement, then please collect that and see Dina, it's right there in the lobby. You can't go until the service is over. All right, all right. People are like rushing straight away. I need my giving certificate right now. Um, today is a, a unique day. We, we have uh, one life uh, on here at the church, and we're going to, we've invited uh, youth from all over the place to come and join us, and we have a stack of 13 to 17-year-olds uh, who are going to be joining us for the whole day until 9 p.m. tonight. So I'd like you to pray for all the pastors and the entire youth advisory that they have the stamina and strength to survive youth the entire day because they will come with energy, energy that I dreamed of and I used to have once upon a time, but now has long faded, and they will have it in abundance. And so we're going to strap them down with duct tape and, and try to encourage them to have a great day. No, we're gonna do lots of good things, and uh, just remember that uh, we're gonna be here until nine o'clock, which means this. We're gonna lock the church by 1 p.m. today. So if you're inside the building, join us. Uh, <laughs> But we're going to encourage you all to exit by 1 p.m. today because we'll lock the entire building down and uh, make sure that it's secure for the youth that are going to stay with us. A lot of people have asked, and so I thought I'd share with you as well, that we have been searching for a youth pastor. We've had over 70 people apply, and uh, we are down to the final few names. On Monday, we begin the interview process. So keep us in your prayers. Uh, the youth advisory is taking that with Gordy leading it, and, uh, and the conference will be part of it, and so we'll start the interviews on Monday, and uh, hopefully in the next few months, we'll have some good news to bring your family here to share with you guys and have a new youth pastor join us, which will be fantastic, because then they can run these incredibly long days, and I will be able to live again. Uh, so fantastic news for that. Uh, but I want to encourage you to keep us in your prayers for that process as well. Uh, you know, it's, it is a very important role in this church, what happens with our youth, as Sandy shared with us, they are the future, they are the present, they are the ones who we want to invest in and we want to stay connected to. So it's really important as well. Let me pray with you one more time and then we're going to dive into Kings and I'm going to make sure everybody's got their worship guide so I'm prepping the deacons up to know that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for scripture. I thank you for the passages that we have today. Difficult as they are, awkward as they are, odd as they are, May we be able to discover the truth and application to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So you are going to need a worship guide today. If you haven't got one, put your hands up, and uh, we will make sure that, uh, we, there we go, over here we'll need some on this side here. And keep your hands up. Daryl needs one up front, up front here as well. Great. So keep your hands up, and you'll get a worship guide. In the worship guide are the recalibrate questions in the middle. And these are the questions that we're going to go through in our message today in the series on prophets and kings. You also have a connect card, and I'm hoping you have a pen, because you're going to need that connect card today, but uh, that's part of the, the worship guide, and you can tear it apart. You can place it inside that little blue container over there, or in any of the offering altars as well. So make sure you have that, because that will help us with the questions that we're going to go through today. So, recap, we have been in which book? First Kings, somebody said something else, I know. Wrong church, it's okay. First Kings, great, First Kings. And we have covered 
quite a lot of territory, quite a lot of years. Because remember that the children are in exile. The Israelis, they're in exile, and they're thinking to themselves, why are we in exile? Why? What did we do? Did we abandon God? Did God forsake us? What's going on? And so they understand the story, and they start all the way over here with Moses. And they presume, before you get to Kings, that you'll understand Moses, that you'll understand all the judges, and you'll understand the birth of the kings. All the time, God is saying, if you had stayed with me, I could have led you. But they constantly are choosing different people to lead them, and eventually they get to the kings, and we end up with King David, who we studied a few months back, and he comes to the end of his life, they can't get him to stay on, he dies, and Solomon takes over. And Solomon, for all of his intents and purposes, was a magnificent king, except for he used his wisdom and might and power to marvel after the Egyptian empire, to marvel after the Greek empire, and he made the north and the south become one united kingdom, kind of like England, one united kingdom, all together, operate, you, you got that slowly, you're getting there, wake up slowly, made them one united kingdom, all together, and in fact, the south, Egypt, they were scared of them, the north, Syrians were scared of them, and he was a power to be reckoned with. He had so much gold that people said silver was like stone in his kingdom. It was like, you got, you got silver? That's like stone, that doesn't even value anything. Gold was in abundance everywhere. But with this, he also married to be able to prove that he was a very virile man and uh, very strong because sex and power was always tied together for the kings. He had a thousand partners that helped him with his virility. And with that, they also turned his head away from God. And so that he worshiped many other kingdoms and many other gods and set up temples all the way through. And towards the end of his life, you saw what a disaster it was. The greatest man, wisdom, destroying the kingdom before him. And God prophesied this. He said, look, you're going to have kings. They're going to abuse you. In fact, he had forced labor where he had all these forced labor, these labor camps to build all the temples and the palaces and everything else that he wanted inside there. So he comes to the end of it, and we get to the story that we're in today, which is 1 Kings chapter 12. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. If you haven't got a Bible, pull the one out in front of you in the pew. You're welcome to take those Bibles home with you. You're welcome to mark inside them, write inside them, share them with someone, or keep them for yourselves. Uh, but in 1 Kings chapter 12, which is page 219 in those little Bibles in the front of you in the pews there. So we have a shift from royal father to royal son. And with that new leader, he's going to have to establish confidence whether you become a new pastor, a new doctor, a new teacher, new principal, new mechanic, whatever job you have, you're gonna to have to establish confidence with the people that you work with, your colleagues, your bosses, everybody around you. And Rehoboam is gonna to have to do the same thing in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse one. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. They're all there to make him king. Verse two, as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. You may remember this from last week. Solomon had a guy called Jeroboam who was in charge of all of his labor camps. Now the king is supposed to deliver justice and righteousness. And Jeroboam said, this is not justice and righteousness. This is oppression. So he said, I will not stand for this. He went against King Solomon and to save his life, he ran to Egypt and stayed there in hiding. Now that Solomon is dead, 
and his son is becoming king, he's like, but the entire northern tribes, they've been used as slaves, basically. I'm going to go there, and I'm going to give a speech. And this is what he does. says that he's assembled there in verse 3. And they called Jeroboam, and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made your yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke in us, and we will serve you. Isn't that beautiful? The king says to them, tell me, how do we make sure that we're a united kingdom? How do we make sure that the north and the south stay together here? And they say to him, well, the yoke is heavy. But he understands this. Rehoboam, the king, understands this. If I cut your yoke, if I cut back on your labor, that means I reduce the taxes. If I reduce the taxes, I have to cut my budget. If I cut my budget, I have less parties. Right? So he thinks to himself, I'm a party animal. My king, my father, Solomon, he was a party animal. He had parties with everybody all the time. He spent money on lavish things all the time. I want to have that now. And so he thinks to himself, I should get some advice. And here's the question, the very first question that we have, which is question number one inside the recalibrate questions. And I hope you'll wrestle through this as well yourselves. How do we grow the intergenerational wisdom and listen to both young and old? It's a good question, isn't it? I mean, it's a question we always have. I have it pop up all the time. People say to us, you know what I want? I want worship to be different at the church. I'd like it to fit this demographic, older people. And then somebody says, no, I really want it to fit this demographic, younger people. And they kind of split them as if they're really opposite, and sometimes they are, because there are some people who say, ah, the music is just so loud in this church. And then other people come and say, the music is just so quiet in this church. I'm like, hmm, too loud, too quiet, too contemporary, too not contemporary. Where is it really going to go? How can we make sure everybody's happy? And this is the intergenerational conversation we have to have. We as a community need to learn and to live as a community. It's the question that this king, Rehoboam, needs to have as well and understand this. And it's the tension that we have all the time, especially when we think of what has happened the last 5,000 years with our young people. And I say 5,000 tongue-in-cheek, but really, I mean, even the Greeks talked about the young people being neophytes. They just don't understand these kids. Youth, so much wisdom is wasted on the youth. So much strength is wasted on the youth. All of this kind of tension all the time. But when they look at studies the recently last 20 years of studies of church and what happens to our young people, this is what they say. The number one reason why our young people actually leave church, why when they finished high school and they think to themselves, I'm going to go to uni, I'm going to go to university somewhere, or I'm going to get a job, and they quit and they don't come to church, is because they've graduated from church. That's what they've done. We have created a culture where we encourage, 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 and then we graduate them and say, well done. You are now an adult. Go forth and conquer. And what they think is, we've left this thing that I did as a child because they were never part of ownership of the church. Our young people need to own the church, which means that all of us needed to take responsibility in growing young people up together. We will hire a professional youth pastor, absolutely. There's a ton of extra special work care that comes into that. But one youth pastor on their own, with all of our kids, will not cut it. You need everybody, all ages, 
engage in them. When I was a child, there was a brother in my church, this little small church in Southeast London, and uh, you can't do this today, because it's kind of weird, but you know, in the 70s it was fine. And so he had his hands in his pocket in his coat, and at the end of the church, this brother would come out and, and he'd give us like little mint sweets, little lemon bonbons, and he'd give it to all the kids. Now today it's kind of weird, if an adult does that, I want to know to myself, well, who's the adult? <laughs> Who's giving you sweets at church? <laughs> and, and why have they got it in their pocket? That's really weird. Um, but then, the innocence and beauty of it, this guy every week said, were you good in church? Did you listen to what God had to say to you? Here's a sweet. Whether we did or not, <laughs> we got those sweets. But I remember him. I remember him dearly. And it made me feel like this is my church, this is my family. Somebody other than my parents, other than my siblings, other than my cousins, took interest in me. And when you as adults take interest in all of our kids, it's a good thing. So we need to be able to listen to wisdom of both ages. We need to be able to make sure that we do not discard people who have lived a long and good life and sacrificed a lot for the church. And we need to teach our young people how to respect their elders, how to appreciate there's beauty in everything inside life. The same back and forth all the way through. But this is really important. So he's going to do the same thing now. He's going to ask some wisdom. And this is where it goes, verse 6. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive. And they said to him, verse 7, if you'll be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Isn't that great? Now, Jesus says the same thing. And I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10, page 584, but Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Jesus is talking to the disciples, and this is what they say to him. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand in the time of glory. And by the end of the chapter, verse 45, it says, therefore, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. This idea in the first testament here of being a servant leader is an idea that Jesus just captured on and took it and said, even after all of these years, all the kings and all the years that go by, you still don't get it. You need to be a servant leader if you're going to do this. And this is what the old men say. Well, the king's not satisfied with that answer. He wants to make sure that he has a balanced opinion, as, uh, as our children's story shared with us as well. And so it says that uh, when he abandoned the counsel of verse 8 of the old men, he went to the young men, the guys that he grew up with, his buddies, and he said to them in verse 9, what do you advise that we answer? Do you see that? What do you advise that we answer? In other words, he has already aligned himself with their opinion. And he says, what should we say? And these guys, these guys, they say, what? Man, you need to make their burden harder. It says here, in fact, it gets down to verse 10. It says, my, it says you make their yoke heavier, and then you make my little finger, it's thicker than my father's thighs. Now, your Bible may say that, but there's a euphemism inside there. It's actually a, a lot cruder, and it's a reference, that little finger is a reference to some other anatomy part, 
of their body, uh, and that's what they're referring to at that point. Everybody get it? That's what he's talking about. So they're really, like, they're just laying it out there, just as guys in a locker room, just laying out the crudest way they could do this. And then they say, by the time you get down to it, it says in verse 15, verse 14, my father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with the scorpions. So he lays out this incredible message to them. This is what he's going to do. He's going to make their taxes higher. He's going to ignore all the wisdom of all the old people who understand what God has called them from the day one, which is to be justice and righteousness, to serve. Instead, he's just going to go with this young crowd who are arrogant, tactless, and abusive. And this crowd is saying to him, this is what you need to do. Now, verse 15 is a verse that you must not forget because it is a pivotal verse. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Hijah, the Shonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That verse tells us that God was involved in this process. Now, God knows the future. God understands this. In Genesis 22, 14, you've got the famous story of Abraham and Abraham at this time with his son Isaac, and they climb up the mountain. You remember the story? They climb up the mountain, and, and Abraham is getting ready to sacrifice his son. And as he's about to sacrifice his son, he hears a voice. And the voice says to him, Abraham, Abraham. And then he looks and he sees in the bush, the thicket there, he sees the ram. He says, that's what you're going to sacrifice. And so Abraham called that mountain the mount of where the Lord will provide. Providence had appeared. Now, the, the interesting thing about this, the Hebrew word for providence actually comes from the word raha, raha. You want to say that with me? Raha. Isn't it a good word? Raha. If I raha, I see you. That's what it is. I see you, and I see more because I'm God. It's God saying, I have a pro-video, I have provide, I have providence, I have providence. I get to see the future, raha. So God sees the future, and when he sees the future, he tells them, you know what's going to happen? That guy, Pharaoh, he's going to harden his heart. I'm going to present an option to him, and he's just going to get mad because I see the future. This guy, this king... He's not going to listen to these young men. He's going to lose the kingdom. And God sees the future. And so when God sees the future, he's constantly working in the middle of all of this, inside the story, which is what he wants to tell them because they're in exile. And they remember Moses. And they remember the judges and Samson and Ruth. And they remember King Solomon. And they remember some of their kings. And they're saying, God, Raha, did you see where we ended up? And God is saying, of course I did. I saw where you ended up because of the choices you made, and I am with you in those choices that you make. But don't give up. Don't give up because there is more to this. Jeroboam then, um, he hears about this, and the king, <laughs> the king sends Adoram. Adoram was appointed as Jeroboam's replacement. So Jeroboam, remember, he was running all the forced labor camps, and when he escaped, Solomon said, get another guy to run all the forced labor camps, calls in a guy called Adoram. Adoram is like, yes, I want to beat these people into making sure that they do everything I tell them. So now the king says, Adoram, go to the north, go to that tribe, tell them at long last in the north that they will do harder work, more taxes, and work it out. And he goes up there, and the Bible says to us in verse 18, then the king sent him, who was a taskmaster over all the forced labor, and all of Israel stoned him to death with stones. Ah, huh. 
message didn't work. And then the king is so upset, he gets together like 180,000 soldiers and says, I'm going to go just demolish all those people. I'm going to go to war. But a prophet comes along and just says, God has said to you, stand down. You're not behaving well here. Stand down. The story is put on pause right now because now we go to Jeroboam who has, for a while, there's just got the 10 northern tribes with him. And he's just like, what do we do? What do we do about this kind of thing? And it says here in verse 25, that Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. He lived there. He went out there to build, to build something. And Jeroboam said in this, in his heart. And when you read in the Bible, and the Bible says the phrase, in his heart, be prepared to discover something unique. Okay? Because what the Bible's saying is, I'm going to tell you something that nobody in the room knew. I'm going to tell you something that only this person knew. I'm going to open up motive to you. So you understand when you're in exile, why it took place, because you need to know what's going on in the heart of this person. And this is what he said in his heart. Verse 26, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to the Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. This is what they're thinking. I've seen churches do this all the time. They're very territorial about their church. They're like, this is my zone. And I don't want my people going anywhere but this zone only. You can't go to another church. <gasps> if you do, you might like it. And if you like it, you might stay. <gasps> Shock horror. Run, run. And so you're constantly doing this, this kind of battle. And some pastors actually behave this way. Some congregations behave this way. They're very suspicious of somebody going to visit another church. And this is what he is. He's, he says, man, there's only one place to worship. It's Jerusalem. That's not in my kingdom. That's down south. If they go to Jerusalem, oh, my goodness, they're going to like it. <laughs> then they're going to stay. They're going to find a girl they like. They're going to get married. They're going to have kids. And I'll lose the empire all because of that girl. So he says, I've got a plan. And this is what his plan is. He begins to build his own Jerusalem, his own temple. He builds his own temple, and he builds some, some, some beautiful animals. He, he makes them, he said to them, you're going to go there, and he says, I'm going to build some golden calves. That's what he'll do in verse 28. So the king took counsel, made two calves of gold. Where have you ever heard of a golden calf in the Bible? Hmm? Where? Exodus. Absolutely. Moses goes up the mountain, he's talking to God, and they're down on the bottom, and they're like, oh, man, I'm bored. Let's, let's get all our earrings, take them out, and let's get all our jewelry and our bracelets, and let's just melt it all and make ourselves a golden calf. Why in the world would you make a golden calf? I mean, wouldn't you make like a golden lion or, you know, something, a golden eagle? No, 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 they made a calf because they saw the bulls constantly at it all the time. They were like rabbits. You get it? The bulls are a sign, the calves are a sign of sexual power. And gold, remember, I don't care about silver and all the other stuff. Gold was like the ultimate thing. It was the platinum didn't even hit their minds at this point. So they're like, oh, gold and, and a sexual image. And, oh, it's power and everything together. So he goes and he makes his golden calves, which is what God has said they shouldn't do. 
He makes a new place of worship, which is what God said they shouldn't do. He makes actually a manufacturing of different ideas, and God said they shouldn't do this. And he creates a new place where he says, I am Solomon 2.0. Come worship in my area now, because it's so beautiful. You're going to love it. It's just fantastic inside here. Which brings us to our second question inside the, the worship guide. What are our golden calves today? Of course, we don't have, you know, a golden calf in our house, I hope. Um, maybe you do. You've got like a little necklace with a little golden calf in it. I don't know. You need some therapy. We can arrange that. But what is the golden calf today? What is it that actually really is our struggle? Because what the golden calf represented, it represented that they didn't want to submit to God. They were creating their own God. And what is it in your own life? that you don't want to submit to God? What is it that you're holding back from submitting to God? When Hosea ends up describing the king of the north and all the kings of the north, he describes them as the golden calf kingdom. The whole line is a line of people who don't want to submit to God. And God understands this. In the midst of all the chaos, he sees the injustice of what's taking place here, and God's engaged with this. What happened in South Africa, People often will say, well, it's just a group of people eventually got together and said, exploitation's enough, and I will stand up for it. But where does that desire to stand up against injustice come from? I pr propose that it comes from God, that God rises it in you. He tells you inside your soul, it is not right. The exploitation that takes place in the United States and in England and in France and in all the other wealthy countries is not acceptable. There is not an adequate way for us to describe this when you're saying there are so many people who do and so many people who don't. And this, God says, I will not tolerate this. You can't have a new worship place. You can't have graven images. You can't be taking all the people away. Jeroboam, things are not going to go well for you. And I need you to understand this. So along comes, for the very first time, a bit of a prophet story. Because it is prophets and kings, right? You think maybe there should be some time. We've had like Nathan give a little snippet of advice to Bathsheba. We've had like a little prophet come along and say one sentence every now and again. Never a major prophet coming along. In chapter 13 now, you get some prophets on the scene. And there are two that are going to come forward. First one says this, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah. The man of God came out of Judah. And by the way, he went to Bethel. So he goes out of Judah, out of the south, and he travels north to Jeroboam to Bethel. Bethel's the place where Jacob laid down and had the dream. It's a place in the judges, very popular, sacred place. This is the place that Jeroboam built all of his altars and his golden calves and his images to be worshipped. So the man of God comes, telling you that he is from God, and he prophesies a 300-year prophecy he says, in 300 years' time, Josiah will become king. They don't even know this. He'll become king, and the altars are going to get destroyed. These altars that you worship, they'll get destroyed, and Josiah is going to reform the entire kingdom. I'm telling you, 300 years in advance, right? Jeroboam is really upset. He's like, what? You're going to destroy my altars? And so the Bible says that he stretches out his hand. And you've seen this maybe in the cartoons because they do this in the Bible, graphic Bibles, graphic novel Bibles. He stretches out his hand and he says, seize him. And as he does this, his hand withers up. And he is now, this reaction maybe wasn't that good. 
So he looks at the prophet and says, please restore my hand. And the prophet says, okay, we'll restore your hand. And his hand gets restored. So now reaction number two comes along and he says to him, come to my house. Which would have been the better response in the first place, right? Come to my house, let's eat together, and I will give you whatever you want. But watch what the prophet says, verse 7. And the king said to the man, come home and I'll refresh you and I'll give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he's saying, God told me, I can't even go back the way I came. I can't go to your house. I have to leave. I have delivered my thing. Right. Second prophet appears now. Now an old prophet, verse 11. Notice that it doesn't say a man of God, a prophet of God. It just says an old prophet appears. So he's not really a prophet of God. He's a self-declared prophet. He appears because he lives in Bethel. And he comes along and he says to, to this man of God, he says, hey, come to my house. The king asked you to come and you said no, but come to my house. Let me sit down and fellowship with you. And the prophet says to him, I cannot come to your house. I cannot eat of your bread. I must not return by the way I didn't because that is the word of the Lord. Right? The prophet, the old prophet says then in verse 18, I'm also a prophet. Come on, brother, he says. And an angel of the Lord spoke to me by the way, saying, bring him back. Have him eat some bread and drink some water. And here's the text. But he lied to him. You get the story? We know that he's lying. But the prophet doesn't know that he's lying. The man of God doesn't know that he's being trapped into the scene. But we know that he's lying. So he says to him, come, come, come. Yeah, God told me he voided your agreement. And I've got a new contract. You can now come and eat. And the guy's like, well, I am hungry. I wouldn't mind. It was a tall order. I delivered a difficult message. I nearly died. So let me come along. And he turns from God and goes to this guy's house. Now, this is where the Bible story gets really odd and weird. <laughs> he eats at this house. He says, thank you very much. He gets on his donkey. He takes a ride back home. And on the way, a lion pounces on him and kills him. All right? So the man of God has been killed now by a lion, but the lion does not eat him. Isn't that weird? I mean, if you're a lion, if you were a lion, <laughs> if we were lions and we had just killed him, why would we not eat him? Because he's bony? I mean, just why not? But he doesn't. In fact, he just stands there and stares at this prophet dead. So the, the false one hears that he's dead and says, let me go. He gets on his donkey, goes over there, sees the lion staring at him, picks up the body, takes him home, buries him, and says, the day that I die, I want my bones to be buried with that man of God. Beautiful. Radical, maybe. Well, here's the interesting thing about this. 300 years later, this story is told with a little twist. 2 Kings chapter 23, page 227. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 23. Uh, we're not going to get in 2 Kings this series here, so I'm just diving ahead. Chapter 23, verses 17 to 18. Josiah, remember? 300 years later, he's going to become king. And he becomes king, and the Bible says here that he demolishes all the altars. And then verse 17, then he said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it's the tomb 
of the men of God who came from Judah and predicted that these things you've done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, let him be. Let no man move his bones, for the let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. He is a king, and he is a lion, and he stands still and looks at the prophet, just like the lion did 300 years before. Now you're thinking, wow, that's pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. I didn't know that was inside there. Yeah, it's inside there. But let's dig a little deeper inside this little section inside here. I love chiasms, and every now and again, you find a chiasm in Scripture. A chiasm basically is that there's a story, and there's an X, and in the middle of this story, there's like a point, a focal point that tells you what the secret of the story is. So when you read the story of Genesis and you read the story of Noah and you read about all the flood and the waters rise and the waters went away and all this kind of story, there's one text in the middle, Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 8. It says, and God remembered Noah. That's what the whole story is about. Well, this one here has a little chiasm as well. It's a little play inside here. And it comes down to the one phrase, the word of the Lord. It's repeated all the way through, and it comes to the central focus. The story is about the word of the Lord. Isaiah 48, the word of the Lord endures forever. This is what he's saying inside here. God is saying, look, no matter what happens inside the story, no matter what takes place inside here, word of God will exist. It's as if they were supposed to be together. Look, it's like this. Campion is north. Where's north? That way. I'm very good. If I had a GPS, I'd be able to go that way. But Campion is north. We are south. We're like the South Kingdom, and they're the North Kingdom. Uh, not in every respect. Easy now, easy now. You're like, oh, oh, did he say that Campion's lost? No, no, no. North and south. But this is a story. The prophets were supposed to be together. They were. And then for a while, they were not together. And then one day, they will be together. Because God is saying, I want Israel to be united. I want it to be one church, not two churches, one church, one community of faith, one connection, one body always. And Jesus is saying this, I believe that I can pull you together. I will be in the middle of there because the word holds us together. We both believe in the word of God. And he's calling us together. And yet, if you think that was just like inside there was a nugget of gold, hey, there's just one other thing I want you to know about this story. And this is even more beautiful as you get deeper into the text inside here. In the English translation, when it tells you that the prophet said that he traveled and he said, I cannot turn around or turn away. In English, we just think it means turn around and travel literally back to another path, which is true. But the Hebrew word shub, which is turn or return, is about turning away from God. That's what it's about. It's saying, I cannot turn away from God. That's what the journey is. And God is saying to us, I need you to not turn away from me. Which brings us to our third question inside here for our recalibrate questions. Where in your life is God asking you to turn away from? Where in your life is God asking you to turn away from? Are there things that you need to turn away from and return to God? Is there a journey that you need to take and say, God, not just in the time of crisis, not just the time of hardship, but in other times as well, I need to be able to turn back to God. And often, often, we'll only go, go to God when we're in difficult situations. There are times, of course, that we resist God. We try to resist God by saying we're really smarter than God. We're smarter than the Bible. 
We're smarter than the authors who created it because they were inspired. We're smarter than the entire universe. We get it all together. In fact, I get it so well that God is beneath me and we reject him. And God says, I'm talking to you all the time. And I'm asking you hard, hard questions. Take with me, turn with me, will you, to Matthew 25, page 573, Matthew 25, 31 to 40. And Jesus does the same thing with them, Matthew 25, 31 to 40, which is page 573 in your Bibles there. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, but he will gather all the nations and he will separate before one another, shepherds and separate as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then he will say to them, I was thirsty, and I was a stranger, and I was naked, and I was hungry. And this is what he'll say, and the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. God is asking you to live the life until he returns. To live the life. Not just to talk about the life, not to talk about one day being saved and the glorious second coming, but to live the life today. In fact, he said earlier in, in chapter 25, verse 25, so you can remember this, 25, 25. Easy to remember? So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And God says, then that's not good enough. I give you gifts, and I give you talents, and I expect you to use them for justice and righteousness today. Not one day when you get to heaven saying, then I will sing, then I will serve, then I'll be a servant, then I'll be great. God is saying, no, I expect it now. But the word of God is really heavy. It's heavy because it's supposed to make us uncomfortable. If you come to church every single week and you read scripture and you listen to the word be broken out and you're thinking to yourself, oh, man, I'm just, I'm so dandy. <laughs> I'm so good. Everything's fine. God has not got anything to say to me. In fact, I've got a few things I could share with him. You're not listening to the word of God. We are broken people. We are, our natures are bent towards evil. And we need to actually listen to God saying to us, I expect you to connect with me. I expect you to put all your trust in me and to listen to me. And I want you to be able to do this just as I asked these kings to do the same. But they wouldn't do this. The story continues with Jeroboam. And it says here in chapter 14 that Abijah, his son, was sick. And so he's sick, and he thinks to himself, I've got to get my son healed here. And so he tells his wife, disguise yourself and go see the prophet so he won't know that you are the queen, and therefore he will actually address our son. I know what it's like, and you as parents understand what it's like when you have your kids. You will do anything for them, right? On Thursday night, I've had a long week this week. Long, long week. And on Thursday night, I was exhausted. And my son, Jonah, has a headache at 9 o'clock at night. Oh, 8.30, and I said, go to bed, go to bed, it's fine. Jonah's like, yes, oh, I'm going to earn some money because he mentioned my name. <sighs> All right, I'm just making sure he's paying attention. So Jonah has a headache, so he goes to bed. And then downstairs, I'm getting ready, and I've got to do some more studies, and suddenly I hear Jonah is saying that he's calling my name. I'm like, your mother's in the house? You can call her. <laughs> no, he calls my name, and I'm, I'm confused because sometimes I confuse Becky and Japheth a lot. And so <laughs> I resist. And, you know, the name calling keeps on coming. So Becky says, hey, he's calling you. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I thought it was you. But it's you. So I'll go upstairs and I go to see him. And uh, he says he's got a headache. I said, well, you, you know, you need to drink water. I told you to drink water. Just sleep it out. You'll be fine tomorrow morning. That's what we do as grown-ups. We sleep through our headaches. And uh, so just suck it up. Um, and then, and then uh, he says, Dad, could, could I have a glass of water? And I looked at him and I said, 
no. Tomorrow morning you get some. And I left. And I walked out the room. <laughs> and I walked out the room. And as I'm walking out the room, I'm going down the stairs and I'm thinking, oh, I love him so much. That little punk. <laughs> oh, man. So I go to the kitchen. I run the water until it's cold. Fill up a glass. I go upstairs and I give him some water. And he drinks the whole thing. Like it was a gallon. He drank the whole thing. And I, and I felt really good that I'd done something nice to help him. But this is the difficult thing. We will do everything for our kids. And they know it. <laughs> and so they expect it. And you will go to all sorts of ends to be able to help your kids. You will. You'll always go the extra mile because you love your kids. You want them to do well. And you're wanting to do whatever it takes sometimes, even when you're tired and exhausted. And this king here, I understand this. And the story is told in this way so that we empathize with it. And we understand, ah, that sinful, wicked wicked, evil king, the murderer and abuser and rapist, but he has a child, and your heart goes with the child. But the prophet says that God says he's not going to intervene on this one. He's going to let the sickness take its course, and this child will pass away. And Jeroboam, your time is done, because you have had so many chances to come back to me. They bury their son, and sure enough, he passes away, and the story of Jeroboam ends, and we return back to the other king, Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam here, the only thing that I think, I mean, there's lots inside here, but our time permits, doesn't permit this. But I'll tell you this, verse 25. Some of you question whether the Bible's valid or not. Verse 25. In the fifth year, King Rehoboam, Shiska, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He is an Egyptian king. It's recorded in Egyptian history. For some reason, we are very comfortable to believe in secular history, but not biblical history. Have you noticed that? Oh, well, the Egyptians wrote it. It must be real. If the Bible prophets wrote it, well, I don't know, man. Those guys could have been drinking. They could have made it up themselves. No, no, no. The Egyptian history records that he came along and he attacked Jerusalem, and he took all the gold. He took so much gold that the king actually had to make his, his uh, shields out of bronze because they had no gold inside there. So the story comes to the final end here, and this is what it is. There are two lines and two journeys coming down the pathway. And these two lines, as they journey down, are saying, God is saying, look at this king, look at this king. Look at these two people. I try so hard to get them to follow me. I gave them the opportunity to do this, but they disconnect and rebel. And when they do, they lose their empires because there is this tension all the time of not understanding the truth that I've shared with them. Which brings us to our final question that we have here, and it's a famous question, what is truth? It's found in John chapter 18, and I want you to turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? That's all that Pilate's concerned about kingdom power, sexual power, military power, control. Are you the king of the Jews? Is there a kingdom that I should be worried about? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And John, when he writes this, he's being very ironic. He's trying to tell you that the Jews didn't get it. Pilate doesn't get it. The people around didn't get it. 
But Jesus does. And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been, would have been fighting and I might not have been delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. He's using different kingdom language. He's saying, truth is not just a formula. It's not just a philosopher's view. It's not just a statement. It's not just facts. There's another paradigm when it comes to the kingdom of God and truth. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king. And Jesus said, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, well, what is truth? And Jesus basically says, it is not political truth. That's what you're thinking. It is not military proof. That's what you're thinking. It is not sexual proof. That's what you're thinking. It is not even proof of a physical cross that you can nail me to. That is not truth. The truth is, is that I will die and one will be saved because I die. The truth is that it doesn't make any sense to anybody else, but it does to God, that God is truth. And the children of Israel, they're in exile and they're saying, what is going on here? And God is saying, of the line of David, a king who was faithful to me, even though he messed up, he understood this truth. There is only one who saves. And when you are saved, you have to respond. I'll play this video for you guys right now. And as you listen to the video, watch the video, and you see the words, I want you to take out your Connect cards as well. Because maybe there's something that God is going to say to you. You don't have to share us with this with us. You can put, but if you do, you can put it inside the offering altars or inside the, the can over there. But I want you to be able to think about what God is saying to you. Let's just watch this right now. We believe that Jesus is coming back. We believe that the stories that have been stored up in here and preserved for us, that we may be able to read them in the freedom that we have in this country, is to instill in us and to encourage us to be able to think, what is it that God is calling us to? And may we sometimes just focus on all the little itty-bitty signs that we want to work out, that this is the reason this is. Meanwhile, you're not living the life that God has called you to. And God is calling each one of us. I mean, every single one of us. And there's a lot more you could do if you listen to God's voice. What you could do with your families, what you could do with your friends, what you could do with your community, and what you could do here. But you've got to open your heart up to God. Because if you don't, you're going to be like Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and you're going to both pretend to be listening to God. And you're both going to have all the tools and all the wisdom and all people around you who give you good counsel and young people who give you crazy ideas. And you've got to work out how to listen to the voice of God and not turn away. And if not, not careful. You'll end up on this trajectory just where you'll sit with the exiles over here saying, I don't get it. I didn't know that I was supposed to feed the hungry. I didn't know that I was supposed to be nice and kind. I just didn't get it. God has given you so many talents. Time that you think to yourself, let me put this on pen and paper. And let me say, of my most valuable talent that I have, time. What can I do with my time? As I have breath and life, what can I do with that? May Jesus bless you with gentleness and a heart that is tender. May Jesus bless you with strength against all principalities. May Jesus bless you with compassion and care. May Jesus bless you with courage daring to be who you are. May Jesus bless you with openness, understanding, and respect. 
May Jesus bless you with power to make Jesus all.